Hi, and welcome to Telegraph Babylon. I'm Francesca Honey. And I'm Noah Ross. And this is a podcast from Moe's Books. Um, this week is something a little different. We're going to share with you an interview that I did with the annotators of The Annotated Big Sleep uh, by Raymond Chandler, um, who happen to be our co-workers, two out of the three of them, um, uh, in advance of their book coming out last summer. Um, and yeah, something a little bit different. Uh, give it a listen. Hope you like it. So uh, we are here in the fourth floor of Moe's Books. I'm Francesca Honey. I'm here with Owen Hill, Pam Jackson, and Anthony Rizzuto, the annotators of The Annotated Big Sleep, uh, an annotated version of Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep, coming out from Vintage Crime uh, on July 17th, 2018, and we're going to talk a little bit about the book. Um, so the first just kind of easy question, I think, is like, what, what brought you guys to this book, particularly in terms of wanting to annotate it, what made you decide that that was something you wanted to do with this particular work? Shall I begin? Sure. <clears throat> um, well, personally, I had been a fan since my early 20s, but uh, as far as annotating, I we Anthony and I were talking about it. It had been a favorite book of Moe's books, thanks to uh, a couple of... Uh, other workers who loved it, and we had talked about it a lot at the counter. Anthony brought me out one day, I think we were having lunch at Larry Blake's, <clears throat> and uh, said, let's try annotating The Big Sleep. And, and my reaction was, oh, it's already been done. But then we looked, and it hadn't, to our surprise, hadn't been already been done. And, and uh, I, I don't know, in, uh, in dreams begin responsibilities, then we had to do it. <laughs> yeah. It's true. We used to go after a uh, after a Saturday shift. Uh, Owen, Dan Lebowitz, and I would uh, then repair to Owen's apartment for some libations, and over those libations began uh, the project. Well, for me, just to read Chandler, but then I did have the idea that we should. Um, embark on a full-scale annotation. I couldn't believe that it hadn't been done yet. So it was sort of sitting there waiting to happen. But then Owen and I had to figure out a way of actually doing it and getting a contract for it. And that's where Pam comes in at the early stages, I think. Yeah, well, I, I was had been hearing about it from Owen and hearing that you guys were talking about it. And... It didn't seem like it was actually getting started. So I said, well, let's just do it. I had just finished another project that was really enormous. And I thought, oh, this won't be hard. This will be kind of easy and fun. <laughs> Which was the exegesis of Philip K. Dick. The, right? it, yes, the, the exegesis of big research book. So, yeah, so I, I jumped in and... At a good time because I had written a proposal that... I had never written this kind of proposal. Pam uh, revised it for us, and we did. The three of us rewrote something. Uh, kind of cold called the Chandler Estate, found out who the lawyer was. We didn't have an agent or anything, and mm -hmm. they really liked the idea. And they said we like to work with this agent, whose name is Will Clark, William Clark, not the uh, baseball uh, William Clark, <laughs> and somehow. Uh, Kind of naively, it came together. Yeah. Nice. 
Um, so another question I had was uh, a little bit wondering a little bit about the process of annotating uh, something like this. It, it seems like kind of a big task when you look at it. It's a full-length novel, so it seems like it would, you know, to go through something like that and think, decide what to pick out and what to to comment on. How did you guys uh, figure out the process for that? I remember trying to put together a template. Um, most of that got thrown out, I think, but but uh, I just went page by page and started emailing it to these two to see what was going on. Before that, though, do you remember? Oh, I remember getting all of us getting together and yeah. like going through the first pages and yeah. like picking out everything that looked that looked like good. we could do something with it. Yeah, we yeah. sat down together with a pencil and the book. Remember and uh, and and. We uh, we picked things we wanted and assigned things we didn't want to other. <laughs> this would be perfect for you, Pam. <laughs> and and uh, and I think it was what the first six chapters or so we did that way. Um, uh, and I still have that copy of the book where nice. you know it'll say you know in in the middle of a paragraph on page twelve it'll say. Pam, and then it'll say Owen, and then it'll say me, A, and uh, that that's how I remember it. That's right. The pre-keyboard, pre, uh, pre-screen. Did, did we stick to that? I don't even remember. More or less. Yeah, but then we, f we found other things. I mean, all, throughout the process, we would be like, oh, I never noticed that. We really yeah. have to, you know, get to the bottom of that pepper yeah. tree that's on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard or whatever. And so we kept fleshing it out with more things that we noticed and that we thought we might be able to have something illuminating to say about. Yeah. yeah it feels like that kind of thing probably comes up as you're, as you're working on it too, I think. Yeah. Um, so uh, getting into the book a little bit, uh, one thing that I noticed on sort of reading it again recently was... Um, how people talk about detective stories is like whodunits, right? But this really isn't that kind of thing at all. Like, it starts out, there's, I mean, there's kind of a whodunit, but not really. It's about blackmail, and then it sort of spirals into something a lot more, like, intense and different than, than what it seems at the beginning. Do you have anything to say about that, or what that means for the story? I don't think it's at all uh, a whodunit. There isn't even an it that... Someone done <laughs> until uh, the ending. The body is discovered at the end. It's the opposite of a traditional mystery. Yeah, that is interesting. Right? The What's going on is blackmail, as you say. The blackmailer seems pretty clear-cut. And the whole blackmail angle, which turns into pornography and drugs, is is closed about midway into the novel. And that's where it ends. But then the story <laughs> keeps going. Right. right? True. Well, Chandler uh, kind of de-emphasized plot in favor of other things, uh, style and, and just telling it. It's a good story. It's not, a, it's not, it breaks from the old-fashioned mystery whodunits, but it doesn't mean it's not a good story. It's just, it doesn't, it, it doesn't tie up in the same way, which is part of the fun. Right, because it's unpredictable a little bit. 
Um, and, and there's definitely not, like, clues. that Like, the reader could not figure this one out for themselves. Like, that's some mysteries people think, oh, I like to try and guess what the ending's going to be. But it's really not one of those. You couldn't even try to figure, if you hadn't read it before, you couldn't try to figure out where the plot was going to go, right. let alone the solution to some mystery. Yeah. What mystery is he investigating? We don't even know till the end. That's what the mystery? real mystery. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah. What is this book even about? <laughs> yeah, right. uh, but, yeah. um, I mean, it seems like you, in your notes, uh, which are sort of very readable and, uh, and kind of easy to follow, sort of a contrast to standard, like what you imagine as an academic footnote, it's really different. It sort of illuminates the book for you as you're reading, which is great. Um, but in, in a lot of the notes, uh, it keeps coming back to this idea of like Chandler messing with tropes that come up in mystery or gangster movies or particularly like, you know, the tough guy vocabulary, the hard boiled lingo you guys talk about a lot. Um, how would you say that, like, what, what, what do you think, what tropes do you think the book sticks to and what does it subvert or both? Um, well, he was, you know, it, it, I didn't realize this when I was young and reading it, but he was, he was, he was inventing and subverting at the same time. <laughs> so I, I, you know, the, I, I'm not sure what he, how much is invention and how much is even subversion. The idea of the, the, uh, the detective that goes back to a case, even though he's not being paid. I mean, it's so much a part of the whole history, but... Right. In a way, sometimes he was he was building on Hammett, who was doing similar things. But it's like he was he was writing and rewriting the whole mystery genre at the same time. Right, there weren't even tropes to subvert yet. Right, right. he invented <laughs> it and then knocked it down. Uh -huh. so, some of the, actually, that's a great uh, that's a great example um, when we wrote. The note <clears throat> I wrote the note about how uh, asking the question why doesn't the novel end when Marlowe's paid off about halfway in, the crimes are solved, and Marlowe's paid off and the case should be closed, and the employer wants it closed, um, and Owen said ah you know that's just what that's how the mystery stories work the detective always knows there's something else going on and he sticks with it, but then we talked about it and really had that been written yet or did Chandler invent that um, uh, so yeah there were there was a lot of that where you know the things that became stereotypical or uh, you know standard tropes of the genre weren't necessarily when Chandler was doing it and then the whole beginning where the uh, detective walks up to a, a rich person's house. I mean, you can name it. McDonald did it, and Robert Craze did it really recently. And uh, But maybe he was the first one that did it, or maybe it was around in Black Mask magazine a little, or, but I don't think so. I, don't, I mean, I think he, he was inv inventing these tropes often. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's really interesting to think about, because... I mean, another thing that you guys talk about a little bit is um, the film version of the movie and and how that is different from the book itself, especially with the way Humphrey Bogart portrays uh, Raymond or plays portrays Philip Marlowe, um, and and particularly like the sort of constructions of masculinity 
and sort of the tough, like I said, the tough guy aesthetic and the lingo that they use in it. And, and it's sort of like, how, how is that different, would you say? What, what is the effect of that, too? Um, oh, sorry, you want to go ahead. I I think Chandler the the thing about both the 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 mystery genre and the film tropes Chandler knew uh Chandler rather was very aware of the whatever tradition already existed and that awareness makes it into his writing he's not just trying to hit the the points um to get you know a standard mystery Told or to to uh, blend in with what was a wider cultural uh, discussion about crime and about toughness and masculinity. Mm-hmm. He knows that that all exists, obviously. Uh, maybe most writers do. But he wants to be commenting on it as he goes along, too. So Mar- Philip Marlowe is actually critiquing other characters' presentation of their masculinity or their toughness. Eddie Mars and, and Lash Canino and Joe Brody especially, who's mm-hmm. kind of a uh, a butt of Marlowe's, you know, humor. Um, part of why Marlowe makes fun of Joe Brody is because Joe Brody's trying to be Humphrey Bogart, in effect, He's, or George Raft, or, mm-hmm. right? James Cagney's trying to be the tough guy in the movies. And... And Philip Marlowe thinks that that is silly. (laughs) As we would if someone came in here and acted like they were straight out of a movie, we'd make fun of them. But the the literature didn't have that kind of self-awareness at the time. So, And I don't think Hammett has any of it. No, not so much. Hammett just wrote really good, straightforward, tough guy uh, mysteries. And... uh, I think to some degree Chandler was commenting on that. And uh, as far as the film, you know, Bogart wasn't Chandler's choice. Chandler knew film really well. You know, he wrote, he was a, wrote an Academy Award winning film scripts. Um, but he wanted Cary Grant, something I didn't know when I was a kid and I was reading and, and which changed my whole reading of the novel. It's like Cary, Cary Grant mouthing these lines. It's, it's a, a very different than Bogart. Mm. Yeah, and and so that, I mean, that's just really uh, interesting to think about um, the film versus the, the literary sort of field at the time and, and sort of what people were aware of in terms of cliches and, and tropes and stuff like that. But it's a very self-aware book. Right. It? It's very self-referential right. all the time. What, whatever else it's about, it's also about uh, the mystery genre, the hard-boiled genre, and representations of masculinity and femininity and sexuality when Chandler's writing it in the 1930s. It's also about that. Right, and and we think about like just getting to the the other the other trope of the femme fatale. Um, we don't have also a traditional one in here either, you know, because I feel like a lot of them. I mean, we do kind of, you know, but but they're sort of. That's the I best like you can the, say with Chandler. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> the the traditional femme fatale is kind of very cold blooded and motivated by money, right? But I mean, for these 
the Sternwood sisters, they've got money. You know, they don't really necessarily, that's not their motivating factor. So, I mean, maybe, uh, w what do you think uh, about sort of the, was the trope of the femme fatale, like, was he inventing it or was he, you know, coming up with a different thing already? Well, it's a, it's an old history, and Anthony writes really well on that. And but uh, for me, I, I I would I would compare uh, Chandler's uh, Double Indemnity, which he wrote the script to, and and James Kane, who did did these great uh, noir femme fatales, to Carmen and Vivian, who like together they both had femme fatale qualities, but Carmen's just a, a, a nut. And and Vivian is a totally. I mean, they're they're characters with a little more depth, um, and you can't quite pin them down the way you can pin down. I can't remember the woman in Double Indemnity what her name was, but Phyllis. Phyllis something. Barbara Stanwyck. Barbara Right, right. Philip Niedecker, right? It's Phyllis something. Phyllis Niedecker. Did I say Philip? <laughs> Freudian slip. Mar Marlo on the brain. <laughs> right. Another uh, interesting plot twist. Yeah. <laughs> Why didn't we have that now? Marlo as the homme fatale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, it's, that, that's kind of, it's almost, yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, Vivian is absolutely not a femme fatale. She's, she's introduced as if she's going to be one. Right. But then it's Raymond Chandler. And he leads you to think that she's going to be one. But Vivian isn't... She doesn't really pose a threat to Marlowe. She's just trying to get on top of what Marlowe's doing and trying to get on top of Marlowe. And how much of that is just manipulation and how much of that is her, her own desire. Uh, and and why not, right? Um it isn't clear, but she's not trying to lead. She's not trying to manipulate Marlowe into uh, some situation that is unsafe for Marlowe. Right. She she just wants to know what he knows and and to have a little fun. And why not? Right. <laughs> um. So uh, another question I had was um, about another thing that comes up quite a bit is is the role of violence and particularly guns. Like you guys track how many guns are there and, 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 you know, whether Marlowe has a gun or whether he takes it away from somebody else. And, and how is that? Uh, I feel like the popular conception of the private detective is a little bit different from who Marlowe is in this story with regards, especially with regards to violence and weapons. Uh, how would you say that is? Did, in the one that you read, was there uh, a spread of the photographs of uh, media Marlowe's like James... Garner so. and Robert Mitchum there in the There's a Mitchum, galleries, there's a, right? Right, I think so. We may have added a couple, but but the, yeah, the the popular culture side of it almost ignored the novel. Everybody's got a gun, and and uh, I mean, I think a lot of what we think of now comes from more from uh, Mickey Spillane or something than 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 Chandler who. Mar Marlowe doesn't really want to carry a gun or doesn't like the idea of guns. He carries a gun more in later novels, but it's not a it's not a big deal. He just happens to have one. It's definitely not a, a symbol of power 
of masculinity. Okay. It's not phallic. His ego isn't bound up in his gun at all. The, the, the depiction of the male like movie star, for example, all the, all the big sleep photos, I think, where Humphrey Bogart isn't holding um, Bacall, he's holding a gun. Right. And, and so it's, it's very bound up in images of masculinity. And that's not part of Philip Marlowe's psyche at all. In fact, quite the reverse. He comments on it and he belittles it. He belittles the men that think they need the guns. Right. And a few times in the book, there's someone who's pointing a gun at him and he manages to overpower this person and take the gun from them, even though he doesn't have one himself. Just and it right. happens a few times. Right. Right. With just his wit. Yeah. His charm. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, and a lot of the violence also in this book kind of takes place off screen as well, right? Some of it, at least. Mm -hmm. But the, it, towards the beginning, at least, most of it you don't, you don't, you're not there for. Particularly, I'm thinking of, true. Of, uh, of Geiger. Geiger, mm -hmm. and of, of course, Rusty's already dead. True, I mean... <clears throat> And Marlo's in the next room. Yeah, <laughs> heavy spoilers. Yeah, right, right. Marlo hears Harry Jones die, but he's he doesn't watch it. And so, because we're in Marlo's head, the reader doesn't see Marlo uh, doesn't see Harry Jones die. The it's reader Greek, hears Greek tragedy. It's right. Yeah. You know that that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's it's. That and that he distances himself from Hammett that way, who is pretty brutal. Yeah, right, totally. Yeah, and it's it's a really good point because by doing that, uh, it may not be obvious to us now, but Chandler is actually swerving considerably, noticeably from uh, the other people who wrote the pulps. Where violence, it was expected in the pulps. You delivered violence. It was just part of the genre it was part of the cost of the you know paper you were paying that money for that magazine the cover was either sex or violence and you wanted violence and chandler by withholding any amount of it is is doing something that uh is is pretty radical for the time and that people would have would have noticed not the elite book reviewers who just saw it as a study of depravity and yeah, right the underbelly of LA but if you pay attention Chandler's the use of violence is uh, more measured as you're pointing out uh, he's he's playing with it a little bit and the readers expectations of where it will be and what it will be um, it's it's a lot more sophisticated when you look up close yeah yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, uh, so, what? Uh, so Chandler himself is kind of an interesting guy, um, sort of educated classically, and and as you point out in the book, and and kind of steeped in po like romantic poetry and and all of the classics and stuff like that. Um, and and then he he comes out and starts writing hard boiled detective fiction. I think I think first he saw his way to make some quick cash. He had been fired from his oil company job and, and uh, started reading the pulps. Apparently, according to the bios, on a trip 
you know, a car trip and thought, I, I can do that. And uh, we, were, we were put on to some early letters that hadn't, had recently been discovered by one of the biographers where he kind of says that to somebody. He says, I think I'm going to try this out kind of thing. I don't, I don't know if, you know, I don't know if I can do it or whatever. And, and uh, but he had all this, this depth and experience as a poet and a reviewer and a, and a classically trained person that uh, got, all got mixed up with these pulps. And you can really tell, I mean, you guys talk a little <laughs> bit about his literary style, um, particularly in his use of language and, and um, the way he describes particular things. It's very unique. Like, you talk about negation. He says, no, nobody said anything. You mm -hmm. know, or nobody said anything to that either. You know, and it just sort of like kind of a unique way of, of, of describing things or, or setting a scene that he has. Um, which I think I noticed a lot more in reading the annotated version than I did uh, when I was just reading it as like a mystery novel. So, I think that's the kind of thing that um, readers feel. They kind of absorb that sort of stuff and they either like it or they don't. They're either drawn to it or it's not for them. It's style. It's literary style. It's not something that is exactly it's not material it's not tangible but Chandler was very aware of style he even says in one of his letters that style is the thing that will survive of an author um, and uh, he spent a lot of time developing his style and I think that's that's that first level of reading where you read it and for the first time you either like it or you don't and you can't always even say. No one says, oh, yeah, I really liked that novel because of the way he... Well, I guess some people would say that about contemporary fiction right now, that the way they send up uh, expectations and uh, the way, you know, violence is, is uh, shown and then your expectation is subverted. Um, in 1939, I don't think people were talking about I don't think so much. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like a kind of postmodern thing. Hmm. Uh, or, you know, well, meta or self-aware thing. In 39, uh, mysteries were, like, were totally ghettoized. I mean, they weren't reviewed as, as serious novels. I mean, we now, we, uh, you know, post, I don't know, Lethem. <laughs> Every, you know, it's, it's, it's all mixed up, which is, which is great. And, but at the time... I mean, I think that our review in Publishers Weekly is longer than anything Chandler got at the time. He got like a paragraph in the New York Times talking about how squalid and, <laughs> you know, uh, so, I mean, I think, I think that's why it's time to look at him again, because he didn't, he didn't, he didn't get this kind of treatment. Right. And I mean, it's just, it's sort of, this was his first book, right? His first novel? Right. Yeah, first novel. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> right? It, yeah. He was 50. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> he, There's hope he, for us yet. <laughs> and, he, you know, he had, he had uh, very strong ideas about what kind of writer he wanted to be. And even if he was going to do this thing that was going to pay him the money that was available, um, he was going to do it his way. He wasn't going to just cater to whatever tastes would put food on the table. And that's what makes it worth annotating. I just bought downstairs at the front counter three Earl Stan Stanley Gardner 
Perry Mason mysteries. They look cool. Um, I wouldn't read one of them, let alone annotate them. And no offense to anyone who loves the old pulps, but um, if it's your cup of tea, it's your cup of tea. I don't know how much annotating, maybe I'm throwing down a challenge here. I don't know how much <laughs> annotating, how much significant you could say about a Perry Mason novel or an Ellery Queen novel. No, I mean, I'm, I'm maybe, I'm a huge guilty pleasure reader, so I'll probably tear the, through those books. But uh, <clears throat> no, there's the, there's the, they don't have depth. They're puzzles, and they maybe have one character that you love either the detective or the, or the or whatever, and you follow them and and you forget it as soon as you read it, and, which I love. Um, when I, when I'm not, when I don't feel like reading something serious. Yeah, it's but, not. But to... it's not. You wouldn't. You wouldn't write a, a paper on them. You wouldn't write an academic article or, or want to annotate them. They're just plain fun, and Chandler includes a lot of that kind of fun. But boy, does he do more with it. Right, and I'm not yeah. trying to be a snob and say that <laughs> say that they're not worth reading. Um, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that their their function lies elsewhere than in the rereading and the rereading and the plumbing right. of the depths. Um, the, you know, Chandler wasn't entirely responsible for all the significance of his novel either. There's 1939 depression, pre-war, L.A. and all the um, all the cultural stuff that's going on at the time, but you know he was responsible for. He did. He did think through what he wanted his novel to be, and he worked really hard at it. And it, I think the the result is something that can be reread. Uh, something we show from that first novel, and I think Ham uh, and Anthony did a really good job with this. Is uh, how it how it evolved out of the short stories. The the short stories are they're not great. They're they're kind of fun pulp. And occasionally you totally. see what's gonna happen later in Chandler's career. But like we they we reprint some of them with uh with the revised stuff that's in the novel. And uh he 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 was a fast learner. He he really uh took those stories and did something with them. Although he always says he was a very slow writer, and I can imagine how painstakingly he must have gone over those sentences and over them to try to make them, you know, as good as they end up. And it's really, it's really interesting to, to have the comparison side by side and see the very tiny adjustments he made in his prose that, that made his style. <clears throat> it's pretty much always for the better. Just in reading them, it's like, oh. Yeah, he really added that sentence, and that made a huge difference to how you perceive the story, and it adds complexity or a few more layers to it, I feel like. Or, or uh, took words out, right. abbreviated them, right. went over and over them. What did he say? Uh, I'm the kind of fellow that writes 35, does he say 15 or 35,000 words to turn in five? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a kind of a great lesson to young writers. <laughs> How yeah. important revision is. If you Google Chandler-esque, there's a result. That doesn't just happen, right? He worked on his style to a point where it's an identifiable um, feature of his writing. 
And go ahead and Google Chandler Rasmus. <laughs> See what comes up. It's a lot of similes. I would think, yeah. Right? Yeah. But, you know, he owns he owns a style. He took from Hemingway and Hammett. But... Um, made it his own. He made it his own completely. He's not imitating, except where he's just outright stealing or plagiarizing, <laughs> does, which he does. It, does. it does happen. Yeah, yeah. There's that... that, that Peace and Hammett from uh, from Maltese Falcon, where uh, and we we got luckily got the rights to reprint that alongside the piece in Chandler, where I I don't know if it's a we we say we don't know if it's a challenge or if he's just stealing to steal, but it is kind of uncanny how close those passages mm-hmm. are. Yeah, um. So I had a last question before we wrap this up. Uh, Kind of a fun one. What's the significance of the title in your mind? Uh, it's you, yeah, there's a long note about it towards the end of the of the book, um, but but why call it the Big Sleep? Well, there there's a there's the passage where he <clears throat> the famous passage where he says you're sleeping you're sleeping the Big Sleep and I can't quote it, but uh, to me that's one of the most beautiful passages in in American literature. It's like on the level of like the crucifixion scene in Billy Budd, you know. It's like n- there's nothing like it. And it maybe I don't know. Uh, maybe he's calling attention to that. Also, there are a lot of dead people in the novel. So, and it's it's kind of a beautiful phrase that he apparently invented. Uh, maybe right. That was right. surprising yeah. to me that that this is a thing that hasn't shown up as much as a phrase before this book. At least right. as far as you guys found out. No, it didn't. And and uh, he he's he's he, I think he's having fun even in the title because again it's a it's a pulpy way of speaking. It's a slangy way to say death. It's a slang way to say death. Um and it sounds like the big house for prison or big shot uh for a, a gangland leader. There were a lot of bigs that were uh, current in the twenties and thirties, and we and, started listing bigs and like yeah. we could do a page of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and so Chandler knows that that's already a formulation, the big X, and he. But the big sleep doesn't exist, um, and he knows he's writing something about you know one of the great subjects of human activity and thought and literature and religion, which is death. So it's almost a little bit of a a wink and a nod to say, you know, to call it the big sleep, uh, to put such a large, uh, you know, human mortality into this very localized 1920s, 1930s phrase. Um, And it's pulpy. It resonates with pulpiness. But as soon as you start reading, you know you're not going to get the straight, I think we say that, you're not going to get the straight pulp narrative. I think that about wraps it up, right? That was a great discussion. Um, and I hope we didn't put anyone into the big sleep. Or the little, <laughs> little sleep. <laughs> yeah, the little sleep. Um, well, that's it. And thank you for listening. That was an interview with the annotators of the annotated big sleep, um, as you just heard. And... Thank you for listening to Telegraph Babylon. Till next time. Bye-bye.